Thank you for joining us here at Prevail Church for this podcast. We hope this experience builds your faith and impacts your life. For more information about Prevail Church, visit us online at prevail.tv. Now let's tune in. Good morning, good morning, Prevail. How are we doing today? We're good? We got one thumbs up. It's quiet. We good today? We good? Yeah, we good. We're good today. I'm doing pretty good. Second cup of coffee is staying strong in my blood. I'm feeling it. It's going great. Mm. Praise the Lord for that. We welcome you all again this morning. Thank you for tuning in online, coming in person. We'd love to see your faces. We'd love to be together, right? That's what this month is about, community, being together. Uh, A sense of purpose or creed, fellowship, etc., etc. I defined it last week. I don't have the dictionary in front of me again this week, but that's okay. So last week at Prevail, dun-dun. I feel like it's a TV show. It's great. Last week at Prevail, just a quick recap, talked about summary going out and loving your neighbor for their good, not to please ourselves, not to uh, put our strength and faith above those who we may feel uh, weaker or need help, right? To go and, and love for their good, to et cetera, et cetera, right? In the name of community, in the name of love. Brief summary. This week, we're going to change it up a little. See, last week we talked about Paul uh, uh, writing his letter to the, the church in Rome, right? And I'm a big history buff, so you're going to get a little more this week. We're talking about Paul in Athens. Woo, the Greek world, Right? It was uh, incredibly popular to know Greek philosophy and stuff um, as a certain class of Roman senators, etc., the equestrian class and all that. They loved the Greeks. And that flowed out, right? That Caesar himself cried when he looked at a statue of Alexander the Great. He's like, he had done so much, and I'm older and done so little. He then went on to create the Roman Empire effectively out of the Roman Republic in a series of flames. And so we get the conquest uh, under um, Roman consuls and stuff. Long story short, we end up at Paul in Athens in the Roman Empire. Now, he had been chilling out in the marketplace, doing his Paul thing, walking around talking smack a little bit, trying to talk about the gospel, right? Guess it's not really talking smack, but you get my point. Paul was doing Paul. He was preaching the good news, right? And... The Greeks, enough prominent Greeks had seen and heard him that they're like, hey, come to this, come to our hill of judgment. If we put these verses up, we're going to start out with some scripture. So Paul stood before the Aropagus. I'm not great with Greek, I'll be honest with you. But basically it means hill of judgment, and it's also including the people and the prominent men of Athens who would be judging his argument on its merits of his foreign god, as they saw it, right? And said, men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all aspects. And the word he uses can be taken in in, in two ways. It can be taken a little tongue-in-cheek, right? The Greek word he uses can be tongue-in-cheek, or it can be very sincere. And the beauty of this statement you can take it both ways. We don't know. That's the beauty of history, right? We don't know, but that word can be taken both ways. And for as I went around and observed closely your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. 
Therefore, what you worship without knowing it, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as, he need, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives life and breath and everything to every one. Man in 1912 wrote a paper on this unnamed Greek God. This unknown God. And he wrote about it. It was probably the most authoritative historical text on this unnamed God at the time. We only discovered the truth of this bit of history, that this moment actually really could have happened not because of other Greek authors, but because in 1820 in the Palatine Hill, we actually found an altar to this unknown, this unnamed Greek God. All right? Paul went to the Greeks who had a pantheon. Their pantheon was ever shifting. We think we know Greek history. You just got particular historical authors of Greek history because there's so many. Um, Stephen Fry does a beautiful series of, uh, on Audible and he's talking about Greek history and it's excellent. It's called Mythos and stuff. It's beautiful, beautiful voice too. Love his voice. But he talks about the differences in Greek Mythology and the pantheons and the changes and things happen. But consistently from around 500 BC, we have this unknown God showing up in Greek history. And he never gets a name until Paul rolls on up and takes the plural out of Greek gods and says, no, this is singular God. And this is the one you worshipped without knowing it. He took some big liberties there, didn't he? took some huge liberties. There was a lot of tension between him and the other disciples because of his liberties they thought initially he took, right? You see a lot of smackdowns happening between the two in Galatians and stuff. If you ever read the New Testament, you'll know that the New Testament is fraught with tension about who Jesus was and how that plays out in their lives. Paul shows up to the Greeks and he does this wonderful thing with these liberties we could say he took. He included the Greeks' own culture, their own belief system. He took their story and he folded it into his experience of Christ. I'm going to continue on a little bit further. I want to talk about the Ethiopian eunuch, right? For those who don't know, Philip... Here's from God, and God tells him, go to this road and run down it. You're going to find a guy. You're going to know what to do. And he finds this chariot, and this man is in this chariot, and he's reading scrolls. We find out that he's a eunuch for an Ethiopian queen, right? And that Philip runs up, and he's like, I see you're reading. Do you know what you're reading? Do you understand it? And this eunuch, very tongue-in-cheek, is like, well, if I had someone to talk to me about it, teach me about it, I might understand it a little better, buddy. Philip jumps in the chariot, right? A little, little, little banter back and forth. And Philip is like, what, what, what are you reading exactly? Because this eunuch had been sent to worship in Jerusalem by the Ethiopian queen, right? And he'd been sent on behalf. And he says, I'm reading this passage from Isaiah. I'm going to read it to you. I want you to understand this is a eunuch. For those who don't know what that means, look it up. It's rough. 
Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughterer, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And he looks at Philip and he says, is he talking about himself or someone else? Now, <laughs> he of all the scriptures of Isaiah, of all the prophets, of all the things, he's got this one scroll and he identifies with it. He doesn't ask about the other prophecies that are way more clear on messianic uh, prophecy and stuff. He doesn't ask about who is uh, Adonai, who is this Yahweh that you do not name, right? Unnamed God, right? You're not allowed to say his holy name out loud. It's beautiful, isn't it? A little, little cultural touchstone there. But he, he looks at him and he says this scripture in particular. And from that, Philip uses that scripture and preaches the gospel to him. I want you to think about this real clearly. A eunuch is a man who had his justice denied in humiliation. Ooh. Like a lamb before the slaughter, and he was silent. He did not open his mouth. I want you to think about this. He was identifying with that scripture. He had no historical context of Jewish religion because he wasn't allowed to be taught it. You weren't allowed to share the innermost uh, things. The Gentiles were not allowed to actually participate in following the law. Did you know that? There was a separate place in the temple created so that Gentiles could worship. And then there was a place where uh, men could worship. And then there was a place where priests could worship. He wouldn't have been allowed to go deeper. He wouldn't have been allowed to get more out of it, right? But and of all the things he could have been taught, of all the scrolls he could have had, he's looking at this one verse in Isaiah, and he's relating to it. He has perspective on this, and he's wondering, is this prophetic? Is this guy a eunuch? I wonder. I wonder what was going through his mind. Right? We always simply take, all right, this is the text, but we don't look into the social constructs or the, the social uh, context as well, both words apply in this, of what was happening in that person's era and why they responded the way they did. Why did this Ethiopian eunuch be like, was amazed, tell me more about this verse? I think it's pretty self-explanatory as a eunuch. Right? Why was Paul using their own culture and identifying it and inviting them in with their own culture. See, I want to talk about stories. I want to talk about culture. I want to talk about community. I want to talk about how this eunuch approached Scripture from outside of the identity of the individual who wrote it. He wasn't in Isaiah's time. He wasn't in Isaiah's culture. He wasn't in Isaiah's descendants' culture. He wasn't a part of it, and he approached Scripture from that perspective we approach Scripture from a similar way. We are outside of the perspective when it was written. Right? We are not there. We are not Jewish in, in the sense of a, a first century uh, CE or AD, for those who prefer one or the other. Both are actually very biblical. The church started using CE first, not the, not, not the scientific community, but that's a whole nother argument, right? Um, in the first century, we, we, we're not Jewish like that. That's a very different experience. That's a very different culture. You have different things on your mind, different understandings of Scripture, right? So he approached it from outside of that. He approached it in context of his own understanding and story. 
Paul approached the Greeks out of their own understanding of the story, out of his culture, out of his theological framework. There was multiple gods in the Greeks. But the Jews had multiple names for Adonai, right? See, we've got this beautiful thing that Paul, Paul is why we even have the word God, right? I mentioned earlier, he took the plural out of gods and made it God singular. He, he took such liberties, but we criticize people who take liberties in our context today, right? <laughs> See, like, like I mentioned, stories have these two moments. Stories have these two eternal moments in them. That moment, number one, is when a story is written down. It is the pouring out, or when it's made into a video these days, I guess. It is the pouring out of the experience of the person. That moment, it's not a second, it might be an hour, it might be a year if it's a big enough book, but that moment of, of, of creating that story, of recording it, is one. You've got all the context, you've got everything. And this other moment right over here is when you and I might read it. When someone else from a different culture and language might read it. Because you've got two moments. The moment of putting experience down and the moment of picking experience up. How I experience the Bible is different from any single one of you because I'm my own individual. And that's an earth-shaking thing to say on, in a church. Because we like this mythology, this theory, this concept that we all read the Bible the same or we should all read the Bible the same. But the problem is we are not all the same people. God bless. Thank you. There cannot be two of me. The world would not be able to handle it. I wouldn't be able to. There can only be one. This is Highlander. Let's go. Great series of movies. Prominent in my childhood. I snuck them when my parents weren't knowing I watched those movies. Anyway, <laughs> little confessions from the pulpit. But, but my point is this. We have our own perspectives. We have our own culture. We have our own individual stories. Last week I talked about different cultures can try to combine and trying to unite. And I'm still reading out of Acts in this. I'm still actually using Willie James Jennings' commentary on Acts and his perspectives and his take on it. So for those who want to know where I'm referencing a lot of my thoughts on Acts from, it is here because the book of Acts shows us, and I quote Willie James Jennings, it show, it's a story of revolution. And we should never forget that. It's a revolution of the intimate. See, he says, we know the Holy Spirit's moving because someone's having to do something they don't want to. And in the entire book of Acts, it's always about trusting God to do something you don't want to. And that something they never want to do is reach out across the aisle and have relationship and community with the other, the outside, right? We, we, we talked last week about dysphoria and how the Jews were, were already a nation in dysphoria and they spent the next 2,000 years doing it, right? Where they had this detachment from their own history and their own culture and their own, uh, you know, their identity was in flux. They were afraid of losing their identity. That's why the Jews in Rome held so hard to it, right? We spoke on this last week. They knitted together and they had power in that and security in that knitting together. And we see that throughout the next 2,000 years in Europe still. The Jews knitted together, right? This revolution of the intimate, this revolution, this creating of life together, right? Of Jew and Gentile is the whole book of Acts. I don't know how to tell you this, but we're essentially Gentiles. 
You may have Jewish heritage, you may have been a practicing Jew, that's wonderful. Probably in the minority in America, right? We are a Gentile nation, if you will, to generalize. We're in there, and so Paul should be our hero, but we ignore so much of what he does and says. We ignore the context of why he did it. And so I'm telling you these stories because we cling in the modern church to a preset, defined, predefined Christianity, don't we? I talked about how the Protestant church is a virus, if you will. There's so many little different variations and flavors all across the country, the Baptist, Apostolics, Elam movement, they're everywhere, they're all over the world. And it started a long time ago with the creeds. Hands up if you actually know the creeds uh, or heard of the creeds, anyone, the Nicene Creed, the uh, Apostolic Creed, all these, right? They were written hundreds of years after Christ. Hundreds of years after Christ. And we look at them today and the Protestant church kind of cut them free from the Catholics because we're like, ah, that's too religious, that's too lawful, that's this and this and this. And, but the, the, already we had lost sight of why they'd done it. The Catholic Church had lost sight. I was listening to a lecturer talking, and he specializes in early church language and linguistics. And he was talking about how the creeds, and even I was guilty of this. And once my eyes were opened, I was reading them, it shook me to my core. Because the creeds were written to be all-inclusive. Not exclusive. They were not written to exclude other thoughts. They were trying to unite the separate split churches on views on theology. And their wording is so vague at the time. It allows so much. Because we don't look at the context of who was at the councils. We don't look at the arguments. We just lump them into one or two groups. But they were from everywhere. They were from all around the Mediterranean, the known world, and they all had slightly different views on how this played out, and then they had their own cultural misunderstandings, and they're like, this guy can't be Jesus in this way because this doesn't work, and blah, 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 blah. They had their own philosophy, excuse me. That coffee's coming back, my apologies, getting old, need up Tums. But <laughs> they had all this, and it started with those creeds meant to create a sense of unified community in the church. That this is what we all believe. See, the Protestants cut, cut a lot of those creeds out and, and tongue-in-cheek was like, that's not us. But then we've got, what have we got in this modern era? Who, hands up if you've gone to a church or you've gone to go to a church and you looked on their website and you look for their statement of faith. We look for statements of faith, don't we? That is an exclusive creed in disguise. It's not inclusive. Because I, I preached on this year, year or two ago about when we start defining things, when we start saying this is what we're for, we often are actually really saying, what are we against? Right? And so in the church right now, we have these preset Christian uh, values and morals and hard lines of what you're allowed to and not allowed to believe and how you're allowed to talk about God and not allowed to talk about God. And if you go outside of them, Roger mentioned this earlier, You've actually said a bunch of stuff which tickled my spine a little. Like, oh man, God's speaking today. He had a friend who went outside of the boundaries of the church that he understood. And he's always questioning and, and all this. And, and Roger shared this beautiful story of, of how he's still in his life and still has relationship with him. That's beautiful. And that's the thing a lot of churches do. They say, no, you're not allowed in this church because you ask this question or you think this way. Right? It's an exclusivity of the gospel. It's an exclusivity of culture, right? 
See, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it this way, and it's going to, it's a buzzword these days. I hate to use it, but it's accurate. When we colonize culture, we explain our story in a way they understand. Someone else, our culture might understand. Someone's community might understand. But we never let their story be explained back to us. See, the problem is we're not sharing our story of the gospel. We're telling it. Paul could have just simply gone and said, this is the good news, this is the good news, this is the good news. Except he didn't. He went to the Greek community. He went to Athens, the, 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 the hotbed of philosophical debate, and he went inclusive, inclusive. He included their own religion into it and said, yeah, and. This unnamed one, I know him. This unknown God, I know him. And you, you don't realize it, but you know him too. He found commonality and he did it inclusively. See, Philip could have said, oh yeah, he's talking about Jesus. He might have just simply said that, but it just doesn't make sense context-wise to why the eunuch even cared about that one verse. Do you, have you read Isaiah? Jesus picked up scrolls and said, I am here, and mic dropped with Isaiah, right? There's a whole lot better stuff he could have read Isaiah and thought, man, is this the Messiah? Well, is he talking about that? Oh, who's this, right? He could have done that, but he didn't. And Philip included him in his story. I am I, I, insane including in the story. I'm saying this word story. It is interchangeable with culture, but it is the story of culture, right? Story is language put down for experience, so you may experience it later. Either verbally, video-wise, written down. Culture is language. They are, they are connected at the hip. You can't take a story or the concept of story and take it away from who you are, who you've been, or who you will be as a community or an individual, right? So I'm saying the word story, and we're going to take it a step further. Our stories, right, woven together for a future. I'm quoting Willie James Jennings again. Stories woven together for a future, not so the stories get destroyed, so that they are redirected. I want you to think about a thread of cloth, right? Probably got one right here. Look at that. It's almost like I planned it. Got a little thread in my hand. This is my story. This is my culture. This is uniquely from my garment. When I interweave it with yours, I do not destroy this, but I help create something new and beautiful. And that's the hardest thing for us to understand today. This is my challenge part of the sermon, if you couldn't get it, if you didn't pick up what I was putting down. See, the point, the point of sharing our story, <laughs> this, is, this is the part where you're like, oh, Logan, don't like what I'm hearing. See, the point of us sharing our story is not, the point of sharing my story, my experience, my culture, my church, my family, the point of me embracing the other is not so that they might know my hopes and dreams. Not so that they will know my struggles. No, it's so that I may know theirs. It's always so we-centric when we go out of the gospel, isn't it? Listen to the Jesus I know. Listen to the... I don't see Paul doing that too heavily. In fact, he didn't get that much great response. He had about half the crowd that said, stay with him and half the crowd left, right? It's when, it's when the disciples said, no, change your mind about how you're thinking about us. We're not drunk. Change your mind. The day of the Lord is near. They believed he was coming back soon. That's why I said it. Not because of 
damnation and, and everything. They didn't preach that at all. The way of the Lord is they change how you think about us. Because how we're talking to you is in your own intimate language. Ooh. Right? What is it? I, I want you to think about this. What is it when we find out someone else's hopes and dreams on a subject that's similar to us? But it's not the same as ours, right? What do you think that's called? It's called perspective. And so when we don't have someone else's perspective on the gospel, on our God, what happens? What happens when you lack new perspectives? See, when, you're, when I'm looking at my phone, you look at one side, I look at the other, right? You see the back, you see the cameras, and I don't see that, right? When I turn it around and we share perspectives, we now get the whole. We now get the whole. The arrogance, the hubris the church has shared over the last 2,000 years and its exclusivity of colonizing with its faith and saying, oh, yeah, your ancestor worship is cute. That's great. That, you know, but here's God. You should worship him instead, right? I'm sorry. Have you heard of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Have you read about them in the Bible? That's ancestor worship, y'all. But what did we do with that? We cut it. We cut it because it didn't look like the predetermined set of creeds or statement of faiths that we had at the time in the church community. What do we do today when someone shares their experience and understanding of God with us? So often I've been sharing my experiences of God and someone's redirected me and said, well, this probably wasn't of God. Well, this was. And I'm like, that's interesting. You have a predetermined set. You have a pre-made garment that you're refusing to, with these unfinished threads, but you think it's finished and complete. See, the, the beauty, the beauty of, of, of um, Christ's garment, right? And I've said this before from the pulpit. When, when Jesus died on the cross, the, the veil was torn so that the Holy of Holies was open, right? And the Roman soldiers had to cast die to see who got his cloak because it could not be torn. Because they gave on him a purple cloak made of single weave, it had not been patched. But then you come to Paul, and he talks about integrating stories, as he himself is a part of a culture that is scared of losing itself to Roman culture. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm willing to share my thread with you and weave your shirt in with mine, right? But Logan... This sounds terrifyingly like you're watering down the gospel, including other people's opinions on God. I would argue the gospel is watered down when we stop sharing the cup. When we stop sharing the cup in a way that allows someone else to experience it, how they experience it. When I drink from a cup and I give it to you, am I expecting you to share the same, the same lip space? It's a little weird, ain't it? It'd be real weird. Right? You go to the yellow side of the cup and you drink from it. When, when you, do you have the same taste as me when you drink from that cup? No, how you experience God is different to me. How you understand God is different to me. How Ruth understood God and her story and, and her faithfulness trying to protect her and Naomi, right? And how, how a woman in Thailand and her culture might read that and understand it as completely different because in Thailand, selling yourself to provide for your family is honorable. Oh, that changes the dynamic because she might look at Ruth in a whole different light 
and see that Ruth is honorable in putting her body on the line. She didn't know Boaz was going to choose her. She had someone's promise and she trusted it. That takes the cultural context differently, doesn't it? I said earlier how we read stories and how it was written is always going to be different. And that is the struggle of Scripture. That is the struggle. And that's what we've tried to nail down of 2,000 years of church history is trying to nail Scripture down, but it is an ever-evolving thing because it is ever-evolving with people. We are not the same yesterday because we change, but God is. But the problem is, here's this cool thing. Let's say this phone is God. Keep the metaphor going. This phone doesn't change. Its capabilities don't diminish. The gospel doesn't go away. It doesn't get watered down because I ask, how do you understand this? Oh, the hubris to think I understand this phone better than its creator, or the hubris to think I understand this phone better than someone else's experience with it. Do you know how many times a day I see something on Instagram or TikTok or my own wife points out, you can do this on your phone. Did you know that? Blows my mind. And this is a phone, not the gospel of grace. <sighs> I should said this earlier to someone. I will read up on something I, I, I discover, right? When I, when I read scripture, I discover something. I will look for it in other people's works because I don't have that level of hubris to think I discovered something new in 2,000 years, right? So I, I, this is my challenge part again. Is your cloak, is your story so tightly woven that you cannot allow someone else into it? Because here's the thing, I said it earlier, we share for our neighbor's good. We don't do it. We don't share our good news. We don't share our love as I called you last week to go. We, I'm not asking you to share it because it is a perfectly made cloak, right? It's perfectly buttoned up. Not missing a single button, no thread out of place, right? I'm not asking you to share it because that's what it is. You're wearing this gospel. You're experiencing this grace. You understand God in this way, and you've had this beautiful experience, and there is love in you. There's the God of hope in you, so go share it. And to share it, you must give some of it away and allow some back in because you may not understand all of God's love yet. Aisha, oh man, you spoke on it today. On your concept of fatherly love from God because you didn't have that experience or perspective the same way other people have. And yet, did anyone dare think that she was watering down the gospel? Oh, amen. Amen. I'm talking about sharing, not for your own struggles to be seen, but so you may see the struggles of another and love them. And through that love, maybe they'll find hope. And through that love and hope, maybe they'll find that faith that Paul talks about in Corinthians together. And with those three things, the greatest of these is love. And aren't we talking about our gospel of grace now? It's quiet today, and I understand why. See, how can we build up our neighbors for our good if we don't know what he's actually struggling with? How can, how can I go to Roger and be like, Roger, I want to build you up, bro. How can I say that to him if I don't know what his struggle is? He's like, man, this fence is terrible. Now I know something. What do you want in this fence, man? He's like, I want to tear it down and build up a brick one. Now I know his hopes. And working together on his fence, maybe, just maybe, he might learn mine too. 
and maybe our stories will be built of one together, building a fence together out of brick that will stand the test of time. Maybe we'll build, let's stretch the metaphor, a relationship, a community from working together with our struggles in love. See, you know, I'm going to go here. I, I, I'm going to go here. This is a controversial state. I've been saying a few, I guess. But we've weaponized gratefulness. What does that mean? We have stuck ourselves at the cross and created this, this mentality of thankfulness where we have to be so thankful to Jesus, so thankful for what he did. And don't, I'm not saying we shouldn't be. But we've pulled up an emotional debt instead of living debt-free. We are, we, are, we are literally stuck down here. We are stuck down here saying, I'm so thankful for you, Jesus. Carrying this, this implied debt of thankfulness and gratitude instead of walking it out in the freedom that Christ gave us. In the love that's in us. He didn't mean for us to be stuck at thankfulness and gratitude, though we should be, because experiencing something beautiful like that creates that naturally. But if you stay at that, you lose sight of how radical Jesus was and how earth-shattering he was. When I say go out and love your neighbor, I'm not literally just meaning your neighbor. I'm not meaning the person beside you or behind you, though I am. When Paul writes about love, we defined it. When, when Paul talks to the Athenians and he talks about this is your unknown God, this is your unnamed God, when, when I say to do all this, I'm saying the difficult places too, the difficult people too, the ones we struggle with. See, Jesus sat with sinners, open sinners. That was borderline against the law. In some cases, it would have been classified against the Jewish law, right? So when I say love your neighbor, do you think I'm meaning the ones you're okay with? Do you think I'm meaning the ones whose stories you can connect the easiest with? Do you think when I say you go and love someone and bring them into your life, I'm meaning the ones that don't clash with you. I'm not telling you to create a new set of, of modern-day creeds or a statement of faith that are exclusive. I'm telling you to make a creed that is inclusive, where your verbiage is love. Your word is love. I love because Christ loved me. I have hope because the God of hope lives in me. That's pretty inclusive. He can live in you too. They can live in you too. Oh, that's a hard one. Pronouns, isn't it? You know, let's tackle it. Female pronouns are used in the Bible for God. You want to look it up and research it? Go for it. They're used in there. The feminine, uh, feminine realm, in Genesis even, right? And that's okay. It doesn't compromise who God is to us. How someone experiences God's love. What if I never had a mother who loved me? Am I only going to see the Father's love in that grace? No, I'm going to see a mother's love because God meets us where we're at. Isn't that what Fred's preached so many times? Isn't he the Father who sees his son coming back down the road and gets his best robe? Oh, et cetera, et cetera. Fred's preached on this. I've preached on this. And I'm saying today, I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to beg you to see what I'm seeing in the Scripture today. I apologize to Michelle. I've gone off my points a little bit. I don't know if she put them up or not. I've just been going. But... I'm begging you to see this today, that your story is beautiful and it won't be destroyed. 
that your story, your culture, your community you've already got, the goodness of it won't be removed by sharing it with someone else's. The gospel can't be watered down. It's the biggest lie of theology. You can't water down the gospel because God is greater than man. Right? He's bigger than any word we say. He's bigger than any mistranslation. He's bigger than any misunderstanding. He's bigger than our perspective alone because you can't see the whole of a mountain from one point of view, can you? And you might walk around it, walk around it, but the closer and the more you walk, the more crags and rocks you see, the more features, the closer you get to the forest, you start to see the trees like the hair on my head. Now I'm going bald and it grows out. You can see the trees instead of simply the forest. And the more detail you get of God, the more perspective you get of God, the greater, the stronger, the more beautiful it becomes in your own life. Do you think Paul said it as a simple argument? Or do you think he walked up to that altar and read it in the Greek and said to the unnamed God? Our word for agnostic comes from this Greek name, the unknown. We don't know who he was, but the beauty of who he was in the Greek culture, this unknown God, a man showed up from Crete in the middle of a plague when all other ships were avoiding the city and he built an altar and sacrificed and lo and behold, the plague was gone. And they left the altar there and they built a temple and they continued to worship this unknown, unnamed God. And then Paul comes along. Do you think he didn't have a little tickle up his spine when he saw that? When he understood and read about it? He's like, do you imagine Paul was just casually like, I'm going to use that in my philosophical debate today. Or do you think Paul, the most religious nut you have in the New Testament, who knew the law inside and out, who bragged about how lawful he was and said it doesn't matter because of grace, do you think he might have researched just a little and thought, who the heck are they? What is this? Do you think he didn't have a revelation from God to use that? For those who think that was for another time, not today, that was Paul's time when God spoke and moved. For those who um, think that maybe not, maybe, maybe just Paul used it, that's okay too. God's bigger than that. I beg of you today, and I know you will, because I know your hearts, and I've met you, and I know you were in community with one another, I beg of you today, I want you to share your story. I want your story to come together with another story. And I want you to be vulnerable in that sense. Apparently the battery's dead. Apparently the battery's dead. I'm sorry for those online. I beg of you today, this month, a month of community, of sharing meals together, of thankfulness, don't be stuck at thankfulness. In this community, don't stick to those you're most comfortable with or know best. Those, uh, this month and this month of community, I want you to listen to another person's understanding of your love and your God. And meet in the middle somewhere to discuss it both so that you might make a beautiful garment. I beg of you, please do this for your faith, your heart, your love, your community, your neighbor for their own good. Can I repeat that again? For their good. For their good. I'm not telling you 
to convert. That's such a dirty word. You can't convert someone to love. You can't convert someone to love. You can convert them to a cult, to a religion, to a political party. You can convert them to anything. But that's colonizing the gospel. It's using the gospel as a hammer, as a weapon, not as the love it is. You are not using the gospel how Paul used it, how Philip used it. This is the low-hanging fruit in Scripture, y'all. Go read the New Testament. Take the verses out for Pete's sake. They're letters. They're not these theological bullets you load into your gun in the right order to get your point across. That's a hard one to swallow too. I'm sorry for that, but it's true. They were letters. They were letters of love. They were letters of tension. They were letters of relationship. The book of Acts shows us the revolution that happened in the early church. It shows us the struggle, and we still have it to this day. And it's a beautiful thing to struggle with being intimate in the relational, communal way, to have unity. So, this month, we've got half a month left. We've got Thanksgiving coming up. This is my challenge to you, church. This is my challenge to you online and down the road. Don't. Don't hold on to your story like it's going to be destroyed. It can't be. And when someone experiences it, what did I say about stories earlier? How they understand your story will be different and it will edify them and grow them in a way you don't know. Paul had no idea that I would read his story and be inspired in this way and research in this way and talk to you today, did he? He had no clue. He thought the Lord was coming back in his lifetime. Let's wrap your head around that. So today, when your story gets told, don't be ashamed of it. Don't be afraid of it being lost. Know that there's love in your heart and the God of hope is in your heart. God, I thank you so much for everyone here. God, I pray that we can be vulnerable enough, confident enough in your grace, in your love, in your unquenchable love, in, in your unconditional love. God, I thank you that we can be that confident. I pray that we can go out and love one another. I pray that we can include our stories and, and weave them together. I pray that we can hear another person's struggles and hopes. And I pray, Lord, that we can have new perspective on you through it all and grow together for one another's good. God, I thank you so much in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us here at Prevail Church for this podcast. We hope this experience builds your faith and impacts your life. For more information about Prevail Church, visit us online at prevail.tv. Now let's tune in.